on today's episode. And this is where it's important to remember that migration doesn't mean crossing a border. It's simply relocation. And the movement of Americans from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt after the financial crisis, Southern Europeans to Northern Europe after the financial crisis as well. You know, we are fundamentally economic migrants. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gall. Today, I am delighted to have with me Dr. Parag Khanna. Parag is a leading global strategy advisor, world traveler, and best-selling author. He is founder and managing partner of FutureMap, a data and scenario-based strategic advisory firm. He holds a PhD from the London School of Economics and bachelor's and master's degrees from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He has traveled to nearly 150 countries and is a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. We will be asking him about his traveling in his countries towards the end of the podcast. Stay tuned for that. His latest book is Move, The Forces Uprooting Us. Parag, thank you very much for being here today. Such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Hugo. Not at all, not at all. So let's get going. Let's, I think very simplistically, you write and talk are a big thing about how the world's going to change, particularly through the lenses of people and where they're going to be. So let's call that migration. So could you sort of kick off with what do you see as the big, your big trends, big predictions and how the world is going to evolve in terms of people and where they are? Absolutely. Well, it obviously has been an ironic moment to be discussing this subject when we're experiencing the most coordinated single act that the human species has ever undertaken. And it happened to be a lockdown, which suggests the exact antithesis of, uh, of my argument. But if you really look at the underlying drivers of human migration and mobility over time, over, say, 100,000 years or even the last 100 years, you find that those drivers are not only present and agitating today, they're very much in overdrive and are fueling each other. So to take a few of them, the first is uh, demographic imbalances, the gap between old and young, uh, the labor shortages within our Western OECD countries and internationally between North and South. So we have a mismatch between aging societies in need of young workers and caregivers and construction workers and that kind of thing uh, in the North. And we have an abundance of that human capital that is, of course, uh, uh, suboptimally productive in the South. So that has been rectified gradually, bit by bit. That's why we had such enormous migration waves in the 20th century. If you think about uh, Latin Americans and Asians to North America, um, Turks and other people from the Near East to Western Europe and that sort of thing. And that's just one. And that, that, that mismatch is more acute than ever in history, right? Particularly because we've had longevity, uh, increases in longevity and aging along the way. A second driver is uh, political upheavals, whether that's international conflicts and civil wars. Just think of all of the failed states, collapsing states, refugee flows from international conflicts, the Syrian crisis of 2015 pushed 2 million people into Europe, just, just that one phenomenon. What's happening in Afghanistan today, Venezuela, uh, has completely collapsed. Turkey is home to the largest number of refugees in the world. So that speaks for itself. Uh, economic crises as well, of course, remember that, uh, and this is where it's important to remember that migration doesn't mean crossing a border. It's simply relocation. And the movement of Americans from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt after the financial crisis, Southern Europeans to Northern Europe after the financial crisis as well, you know, we are fundamentally economic migrants. And then there's technological disruptions like labor automation, when factories close, people are forced to move and relocate and look for more affordable places where there are jobs. Digitization and remote work now allows people voluntarily to go and live wherever they want. So that is also a driver of movement. And then finally, there's climate change. And climate is, if you go back to our most innate, you know, kind of, um, you know, historical experience of human geography, um, uh, the climate is the driver that determines mo where most people live. Most of the human population, for example, lives between 20 and 30 degrees north latitude. And that's, of course, not at all an accident. But as you um, have been hearing this term climate niche, right, the climate niche is shifting as temperatures rise. And for every one degree of temperature rise, it's predicted that a billion people will be displaced from that climate niche. So bottom line is, I guess, uh, just to sum up, uh, you know, over the centuries, I, I looked back at the last, you know, three, four, 500 years, and I realized that the number of people who have moved 
over these centuries has grown from single digit millions to tens of millions to hundreds of millions in the 20th century. And in this century, surely more than a billion people. And I think that we can expect it. It's predictable. It's uh, it's already happening and that we need to anticipate and prepare for it. Yeah, and the way I think about that, you know, through an investing lens is that there are some things at a high level which you which are really important and you know are going to happen. You don't know the, exactly the numbers. And I think what you're saying is that in the next pick a number 50 years, we are going to see a lot of migration. Doesn't necessarily mean people leaving countries to go to another, but within countries and that's a lot of movement and that has tremendous investing implications. And you listed a lot of reasons why migration happens and and indeed has always happened. But I guess the one I kind of want to drill down on a bit more is is climate, climate motivated, climate necessitated mm-hmm. change. So could you talk a bit more about what that means? Because that probably you know, climate volatility or, or actually you know irreversible climate change has not necessarily been a driver historically. Oftentimes it's been people see- simply seeking to improve their lot in life. But now you've got you can debate how much, but quite meaningful climate changes that are changing how hospitable re- regions are. So could you talk a bit more about what you think as, as a push factor, what that is going to mean? Absolutely. And and indeed, as you were saying earlier, really every one of these drivers has investment theses attached to it. If you think about the great demographic deflation of the world, we are reaching what I call peak humanity. The maximum number of human beings that will ever simultaneously live is not going to be the 15 billion people that were predicted um, you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's more like 9 billion people. In other words, when the stock of you know, human, the human population becomes finite. Suddenly you have almost a zero sum game on demographics and demographics is of course fundamental to our economic forecasts and calculations. So there are, there's an investment story around every one of these drivers, obviously automation, for example, and so on and so forth. But coming to migration, um, you know, what I do as a traveler is to really take these swaths, these regional patches of the world that either fall within the borders of one country, let's say, you know, Siberia and Eastern, you know, Russia, or within the United States, uh, across borders, parts of Europe and so forth, and kind of look at the nexus of their environmental suitability for human habitation, uh, the economic composition of that geography, what are the activities going on there, what is the industry, the productivity, the supply chains, the late, the, the obviously uh, the human capital and skills, um, and the political degree of preparedness a country has uh, for migration, whether it is emigration or immigration, and sort of put all of that together into kind of a holistic analysis uh, of these geographies. There's no question that the southern hemisphere by and large is going to be more a victim uh, you know than a victor from climate change but that also applies across much of the northern hemisphere as well if you think about the large economic anchors and pillars of the world it's north america europe and asia and asia is of course multi multipolar in and of itself but they all have different climate scenarios attached to them. A lot of times people forget that Europe has a far higher northern latitude than the United States does. Europe is, of course, more at Canadian latitudes. And when you look at these climate niche maps and forecasts from the IPCC and others, Canada, of course, winds up looking like the promised land, uh, whereas large parts of the United States become unlivable. And so, you know, when we make our macroeconomic forecasts, we do have to start to take into account the you could call it the stranded assets of coastal infrastructure and other kinds of, uh, you know, sort of sort of assets that are obviously no longer viable. It could be for regulatory reasons or it could be because geographies are unlivable. We have to think about the GDP erosion. Uh, there's a very prominent study that was done called the uh, Climate Impact Study that looked out to 2040 and scored every county in the United States according to its projected gain or loss of GDP for as temperatures rise in a high climate change scenario out to the year 2040. And there were many of America's 3000 counties that literally will be smaller than they are today in terms of population and GDP. So you wanna be looking at the fundamental in climatological and economic geography of places, which is so different from the static approach that we've had in a, with a non-climate change lens when making our predictions about markets. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you, you're that you're describing there, and indeed you're doing your work, is is blending these factors. But I guess you know, g- going back to just climate, 
where do you see let's let's maybe let's get a bit more specific and start um talking about your map of the world given that the chances are you've been to most of the places we're going to talk about so i'm still super impressed you've been to nearly 150 countries it's maybe oh, it's feel, more uh, actually that's <laughs> more oh wow but to update that bio <laughs> yeah uh yeah so but when we start thinking about let maybe let's go around the world by some regions just again you know to be precise is difficult but we kind of know these things are in motion and therefore there is going to be movement and and therefore there is opportunity and and risk around all sorts of different lots of different investing conclusions up to and including real estate so as we think about say asia i was fascinated uh in in your book where you talk about the rise of the, of the stans kazakhstan uzbekistan turkmenistan kyrgyzstan that there are many stans and i haven't been to any of them and i've always looked at the map of the world and thought what would it like to be there so I, i've always been very curious and you're saying actually their time is coming i mean their time has been before with the silk roads but may, it's coming because of climate change and it will push people up whether that is people coming from india uh, other parts of and and of, of central asia and also you think russia's time is coming as well so could, maybe we in our sort of billiest fog like trip around the world we can sort of start there and talk about why that you think those regions are going to change or why climate is such a big driver of that change absolutely and this is you know to me the the region of the world that really tugs at my heartstrings the most i've spent so much time there over the last 20 25 years and witnessed the demographic changes the economic modernization and progress and and so forth and in, indeed the revival of the so-called you know new silk roads uh, over the past three decades since the collapse of the soviet union and um you know they have done overall a pretty good job of managing economic transitions i'm sp speaking primarily of course about kazakhstan and uzbekistan and when you look at russia and uh, sort of you know central russia and eastern russia there's no doubt that there is a lot of climate volatility that isn't all good. I mean, the forest fires that were raging last summer in Russia were larger than all of the rest of the world's forest fires put together with very little state capacity to control them. So Siberia is literally on fire, which is not the image that comes to mind when we think about Siberia. But my first road trip across all of Russia was more than 10 years ago, and it happened to have been a major heat wave uh, in the summer of 2010. And I was in a big beat up old Land Rover truck that had no air conditioning. And I thought to myself, I can't believe I'm in a Siberian heat wave. How is this possible? <laughs> that I'm in a Siberian heat wave. And, uh, and and interestingly enough, six months later, the Arab Spring broke out. Now, you're in markets. By now, everyone knows the story that Russia's wheat imports uh, were restricted after that Siberian heat wave of 2010. And in... Um, and precisely January 2011, you had the riots in Egypt and now the similar phenomena are happening again with the commodities price volatility. So there's a there's some broader lessons here. But this year, to bring it back to to climate change in that particular geography in this year, 2021, Russia has been the world's largest wheat exporter. And a number of countries in Central Asia, particularly again, Kazakhstan, again, have really risen up the rankings in global food production. And with their enormous geography and very underpopulated, um, you know, sort of sort of, uh, you know, realms, you could easily imagine far larger populations. And indeed, Kazakhstan's population is actually growing. Russia's population is, of course, in decline. You would say almost terminal decline, given emigration, alcoholism, other causes of mortality. COVID, by the way, has, of course, been horrific in Russia, and they're terribly, you know, they're underreporting that. But Kazakhstan's population is growing. It's very young, high, high fertility, a lot of optimism and confidence in the society, a large number of foreigners coming in. It's a real magnet. I've actually talked to and, and advised private equity funds that are going in and building and expanding schools, international schools, hospital chains, all manner of um, kind of real assets uh, and, and economic assets across the country, uh, given that overall positive trajectory. And when it comes to the new migrants, a lot of people are surprised, most of all myself as someone who was born in India, that over the last 20 something years, I just keep seeing more and more Indians in, in Kazakhstan and in Uzbekistan. And so I decided to uh, frame this in the book by talking about what I call the reverse Mughal Empire. Because of course the Mughal Empire was founded 500 years ago in Central Asia in the Fergana Valley. And Babur and his descendants came southward and conquered the Delhi Sultanate. And you had the, um, you know, the, the, the rise of the Mughal uh, Empire. But now you have the South Asians moving north. Uh, you know, 
over the Himalayas in their other direction, as it were, and not colonizing, of course, their guest workers, you would say, but finding their feet and uh, assimilating into Kazakh life. And this isn't an area that people uh, don't or maybe have the historical appreciation to, to be aware that this really is a melting pot zone. So I characterize it as a country of 25 million people that could have 200 million people a couple of decades from now, the way things are going with climate change. Because if you look at those maps, again, uh, the biggest red zone in the world in terms of decreasing suitability for human life is India and Pakistan and Bangladesh which happen to be the three major South Asian countries whose combined population is greater than 1.8 billion people. And so it becomes perfectly logical from a climate standpoint through these scenarios to, to forecast that the largest diasporas in the world will be the South Asian diasporas, far larger than the Chinese diaspora today, not least also because Indians are much younger. So anyway, the kind of global Indian footprint is set to expand massively, and Central Asia is going to be a prime destination for it, given these climate models. Big country in Asia called China. Let's talk about China. People, environmental degradation, particularly water, and what does that mean for people flows, and then, I guess, geopolitical stability in that region? Well... It's so fascinating because China is still the world's most populous country, but barely. I mean, at this point, it doesn't. The the, the distinction between China's and India's population in terms of the aggregate is negligible. But the the age structure is, of course, very different. China's median age is far higher than India's, and so India will not only uh, rapidly surpass China given its higher fertility, and of course the diaspora issue. But China, even though it still has you know 1.3, 1.4 billion people, the the dependency ratio is the real issue. Uh, you know the one two four as it's known, one child supporting two parents and four grandparents, and with uh, again fertility plummeting. Fertility in China has now reached Japanese level. It's sunk so low. And therefore, China, on the one hand, still has the world's largest diaspora, and many Chinese still migrate outward as laborers or scientists or students, whatever the case may be. But China is also importing people. It needs to, given the, of course, the gender imbalance as well, it actually has been uh, importing brides, uh, Burmese, Vietnamese, um, uh, Thai, Filipino, Korean, you name it. Um, and importing um, nurses and caregivers uh, for the elderly Chinese whose children and grandchildren have moved to, you know, away from the countryside into the city. So China's issue, despite its large size, is, of course, the demographic structure and how to incentivize younger Chinese, male or female, the so-called lie flat generation of millennials who are just burned out to work in the services economy, which is to say, again, in, in elderly care and in logistics and all of these other kinds of uh, professions and fan out and circulate around the country in a way that will allow them to uh, continue this push towards self-sufficiency. Because, of course, whereas there are people from poorer countries who move to China it's not a place anymore, given its politics, um, that is going to be a welcoming place, certainly not for Westerners, right? So you have to actually take into account the geopolitics, the, the, the demographics, the uh, gender imbalance, all of these things. And then, again, the environmental issues like water and so forth, that you're very right to raise that. But here's an area where, even though you might say that every problem in China is the largest problem in human history to some degree. Um, they're taking those steps. They're they're working on, you know, true to the reputation as the hydrological civilization, you know, the famous term that Joseph Needham used to, uh, to describe to China. They are working on these massive river diversion projects and other kinds of schemes uh, to, you know, provide uh, a stable water supply, a clean water supply for the north and northeastern regions of China. There's no guarantee of success of any of these initiatives, but China is making efforts in this regard um, you know, far more intensively than, say, India is, which actually has similar water stress issues. And water, water particularly China versus India, is, is a likely flashpoint. Are, are there other parts of the world where you can s see that diversion of, of water or, or, or not the battle, wrong word, but the, the need for fresh water is going to outstrip supplying and could well lead to instability. Where is, is this the biggest flashpoint, just the water flowing out of the Himalayas? 
Well, there's there are quite a few flashpoints, unfortunately. And if one of the maps that I've recently been designing kind of overlays the the sort of increase in water stress due to falling water tables and other uh, water related phenomena versus the population density. And so there are a number of areas where you find that correlation particularly strong. And again, with this kind of uh, choropleth cartography, you have pretty direct insight into the places where the, that the next flashpoints are going to be. Um, that said, water wars don't create more water, which is why you haven't really seen a sort of, you know, officially declared international conflict over a, you know, river basin or something like that. Because again, you know, that doesn't actually lead to a productive outcome for anyone. And so this has actually been one of the areas a fairly innovative diplomacy in boundary regions between countries. That said, it's not all, you know, uh, you know, sort of sort of peacefully managed. You have a lot of volatility in the relations between Egypt, uh, Sudan and Ethiopia, for example, over the Great Renaissance Dam project, the Himalayas, as you mentioned, the Mekong River, uh, China and Southeast Asia. So, you know, there there is still a lack of transparency among the various parties around dam building, water flow management, you know, seasonal volatility and, you know, providing sharing of information so that countries can prepare accordingly. But but again, it's not really a causes belly between these countries. It's just a sort of slow moving catastrophe in some cases like Laos or in other cases, you have joint hydrological projects. One of the things that China wants to do is to actually divert certain Russian rivers. Russian rivers flow from south to north, sort of like the Nile does. Uh, but of course, there since there are almost no people in the vast ter terrain of eastern Russia, and yet you have these mighty rivers uh, flowing all the way to the Arctic, they want to do these uh, diversion projects that would bring some of this water down towards uh, China's northeast. Not something that's really advanced in negotiations, but I've had conversations with water authorities in China, as well as uh, major energy and utility players in Russia, and they do view it as something that, you know, despite the political sensitivities, is all but inevitable. So you'll start to see more infrastructure in that uh, location as well. In terms of major mountain ranges of the world and the populations, you know, that surround them, you could have really very little confidence in the Andean countries, you know, that they're going to manage the Himalayan, that the, the Andean runoff, um, you know, in a way that manages to uh, preserve their agriculture, but also ensure a long-term water supply. The Rockies, of course, you know, they're better late than never, but, you know, Colorado knows that it has issues to, to grapple with, but, but America can afford that infrastructure. The Alpine countries are the only ones where you can have full confidence that they're going to develop the kinds of, again, hydro engineering projects. Uh, you can, you know, everything from underground reservoirs to um, long distance irrigation channels and so forth to manage Alpine, uh, you know, glacier melt. melt. And then there's the Himalayas where it's so vast and there's so many flashpoints and such uneven degrees of economic development that there isn't really one pattern for how it will play out. Let's, uh, I just want to do a little bit more on our geographical tour before we start talking more specifically about people. So you said Canada is a, Canada is a huge beneficiary. And, and so let's just talk a bit more about the U.S., what you foresee happening in terms of population movement because we've seen recently in the u.s you know you've seen an emptying out of you know the headquarters of of, of our firm, firm william blair is in chicago chicago population has been seeping south down to the southwest whether it's arizona new mexico etc so that feels like it's going to reverse that, that actually you're going to see a big push from the south up to the north of the u.s and across the border into canada is, is that right and then That's the implications exactly right. of that are pretty pretty mm -hmm. big it is, but we don't see it in the demographic data yet. What we actually have seen is that Illinois and Michigan are two states that are still losing people. And Michigan just lost a congressional seat because it literally its population continues to decline. But there's no question. And this is one of the, you know, the geographical areas that I focus on the most in the book. There's no question that uh, the Great Lakes region is perhaps in the entire world the most climate propitious zone to be in, given the freshwater supply 
um, and the overall kind of stability of the U.S. Mexico, U.S. Canada, you know, border region. Um, and so I do foresee with with a high degree of confidence that the population of the Great Lakes region is going to going to expand and it'll spread across different states, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan and so forth. And there are communities that I've visited and talked to um, municipal leaders and chambers of commerce and mayors and so forth in where they are preparing for this. You know, they do want to make sure that as climate gentrification brings people from the south back to the north. Again, you have the Rust Belt to Sun Belt migration that you were just referring to, and it will eventually reverse because of uh, the climate situation in Texas and Arizona and Florida. All of these places that are that continue to be net gainers in population ultimately will suffer from such you know climatological volatility that people will move away and they'll move back north. So I'm I'm actually advocating that that happen. And part of my commentary relates to, of course, the U.S. infrastructure bill right now, because the way infrastructure is done is, of course, highly politicized uh, in which every you know district wants to get its piece of the you know share of the pie. That's not the way spatial planning should be done. You have to start with the climate model and say, you know, people of Louisiana, it's not your fault that climate change is bringing these uh, devastating hurricanes to your shores, but it no longer makes economic sense to be rebuilding, um, you know, power lines and other assets, other infrastructure in coastal Louisiana or coastal Mississippi. Instead, we need to incentivize people to relocate to climate resilient areas. I go so far as to say, you know, rather than spending a billion dollars a year on re on re rebuilding power lines in, in Louisiana that are going to get destroyed in the next storm, you should probably buy those people a plane ticket to Detroit. That that didn't go over very well with the people of New Orleans when I wrote that in the book or in the in the, in the Washington Post a few weeks ago. But alas, uh, this is taxpayer money at work, so we have to be utilitarian about it. So again, start with climate, then think about migration and demographics and relocation, and then make your 50-year infrastructure investments, right? Because it is a generational investment. So it needs to be done in this next generation in climate resilient places in ways that we never considered before. So yes, the Great Lakes, you know, will absolutely be a winner. The only question is who realizes it first. And Canada, of course, as well. That's a great point. That's a great point. And I don't hold out a lot of hope on most infrastructure planning that it will take into account the things you're describing there over the time period you're describing. So w one last place on, on our geographical tour, then we'll drill down into people and politics because that's very important. And so this is your idea of a new Hanseatic League, the idea yes. that actually Northern Europe, Greenland, Canada, you know, New Newfoundland, Northeast Canada can become a new tra trading zone in the way that the Hanseatic League back in the day in the North Sea and the Baltic Sea was very successful. That That's a pretty interesting idea. It's a pretty interesting idea about where the economic center of gravity of, of Europe might move and indeed where Europe will have to look. Because I think last 10 years, last 20 years in Europe, it's been very much look east, look east, certainly Eastern Europe, Germany towards Russia, big effort to try and attract investment from China. But Europe's central gravity moving north because of climate is is an interesting idea and a definitely a different scenario to maybe the the, the centers of attention that uh, an effort of the last 20 30 years well the core western european economies are still of course you know the engines of the european economic uh you know sort of commonwealth and area you know germany in particular of course and germany has a uh, you know fairly stable climate scenario and of course to the extent that countries or regions can generate microclimates through their renewable energy and uh, you know other environmental systems. Germany and Switzerland and France are leaders in that as well, going back to nuclear power and all of the other things uh, that they're doing with wind and solar and all of that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm again very very bullish on Europe uh, for different reasons than people. Well, I mean, of course, there's generally a market pessimism about Europe given slow growth, aging demographics, and so forth. But if we tie together a couple of threads here. The outbound Asian populations, and let's remember that Asia represents not only most of the human population, but most of the world's young people as well. The outbound Asians are now increasingly choosing Europe over the United States. I see this with students. I see this with tech, with tech workers and IT workers. You see it with nurses and doctors and all sorts of uh, professions. So you have the rise of what I call the Asian Europeans instead of the Asian Americans. I, I grew up 
labeled an Asian American. And there weren't any Asian Europeans up until relatively recently. But I predict that in the next 20 years, there'll be many more millions more Asian Europeans than there are Asian Americans uh, for, for a variety of reasons, some of which we've already discussed. So the New Hanseatic League is sort of the icing on the cake in the sense that as the northern, uh, you know, sort of uh, cone of the planet starts to take on these characteristics of year-round economic activity, Arctic shipping, and growing populations, diversification of economies, those cities with that maritime heritage and, and obviously um, capacity, political will, connectedness, and so forth, are going to really thrive again. And I, I see this because I, I also went to high school in, uh, in Hamburg, one of the old great Hanseatic League cities, and spent a lot of time in Estonia and Finland and Sweden and so on. And I, I do see already the networks that are forming whether it is railways across the Nordic countries, obviously more ferry and shipping lines and airline connections, the ways in which those countries collaborate in through processes like the Baltic Union, uh, which is a sort of nation transnational body, the things they do around integrating their banking systems and telecom and so forth is all evidence of this kind of new Hanseatic League. And of course, their trade with each other, the flows of people and talent are all very dense today. And territories like Scotland, um, you know, ports uh, such as those of Newfoundland and Canada, and eventually, you know, more towns that will spring up in Greenland. I visited the northernmost city in the world or town in the world, Kirkenes, Norway, and I've seen the population grow from, you know, 10,000 Norwegian sort of, you know, fishermen seasonally to really a year round community. Uh, with a wide range of economic activity going on, whether it's shipping or, uh, and of course, uh, still the um, you know fishing and other industries, but to Arctic tourism and uh, and the mineral, the exploitation of minerals, uh, the mineral deposits of northern Finland and Sweden is a huge industry already for Sweden and will be even more so uh, for the other Nordic countries. So yes. There is this reemergence of the uh, of the Hanseatic League, and I think uh, you know it uh, really speaks to a number of simultaneous trends: the rise of cities, the connections among cities, um, you know, again the the uh, the sharing of talent and knowledge, the spread of internet cables between these cities, and on and on and on it goes. So I'm quite bullish on that entire zone. Yeah, 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 yeah. but that, that's that, that that all makes sense. And again, you know, back to the kind of the investment implications. I think it's it's super important. So a few more things that I want to cover before we finish. One is to talk about the politics of this, then to talk about your phrase quantum people, and then just to maybe finish off around investability and some of the data sets you're bringing together. So the politics of this, the politics of this right now in most certain Western democracies are the wrong wrong way for this. That they are, we don't want more people coming in. More people coming in causes problems. We'd we'd have fewer problems if we didn't have people coming in. That's a that's a simplistic sort of summary, but that is permeating the politics certainly in Europe and has done in the U.S. So, what you're arguing for is that's going to have to turn on its head, and actually, it's going to go the other way. Countries are going to say we need more people. We need to make ourselves more attractive so we can attract people. That is very different from the current political climate. So, I think it's very interesting. And could you expand on that? Absolutely. And I think though the train has already left the station, and the initial conditions that that you're describing, we can already safely modify away from the kind of um, generalization that Western societies would prefer to close themselves off and look at the divergence within the West on immigration policy, because I do believe this war for talent is already well underway. And some of the anchors of Western, um, you know, sort of Western culture and the Western system, such as Canada and Germany, very much prove uh, to, to break from that kind of, you know, this sort of nationalist populist frame that we tend to ascribe to all Western and OECD countries. If you look at Canada, of course, it's pound for pound the most generous country in the world in terms of inward migration. They're increasing their population by 1% every single year. Uh, that amounts to more than 400,000 people. So they're on track to really become a demographic superpower. In Canada, there is a consensus that immigration policy is economic policy. Uh, there are years where Canada, with one-tenth the population of the United States, not only brings in almost as many people as America, but actually out, out imports and out recruits skilled migrants from India uh, because of the uh, Trump administration's curb on H-1B visas and so forth. If you look at Germany, it's of course been more reluctant. You might even say accidental 
But of course, Germany is the economy now in Western Europe that's benefited from integrating, whether it's asylum seekers, refugees and other migrants over the last 30 years from the Balkans, from the former Soviet Union, of course, from the Arab world and elsewhere from Turkey into its economy, uh, you know, through its vocational training system and so on. So and look at just happened in Germany's election. Right. The far right parties were more or less uh, you know, obliterated. Um, and that was actually predictable because Germans are, have become very pragmatic about this issue. And if you look at the agenda of this new coalition government, I mean, that you can become a citizen of Germany within three years, uh, irrespective of your heritage, is not something you would expect from a country like Germany and from any countries that who are, where traditionally birthright citizenship is the only way to acquire that nationality. So there's a lot of exceptions to the rule. Britain is learning this, by the way, you know, Boris Johnson and, you know, passports, before, people before passports and so on. Look at how the combination of Brexit and COVID exposed the shortage of truck drivers, nurses, doctors. So it's actually easier to migrate to the UK right now than it was five years ago. Um, so I think that that really, you know, again, the train has left the station. It's a war for talent, particularly young talent. And countries realize, especially those with very large, outstanding pension liabilities and entitlements, uh, that they need those young workers. Uh, yeah, and as I said at the start, there are some some big trends that you don't know precisely how to forecast and quantify them. But that's not the point. You know they're going to happen. And I think what you just described is something that is going to happen, that mm -hmm. we're going to see these people flows. And I guess we've talked really a lot about the push of climate change and then maybe the pull of countries making themselves more attractive. But let's talk a little bit about people themselves. You, you've got this good expression, quantum people. Can you talk about what you mean by that and actually what sort of aspirationally young people are going to want to be? And I think a core of what you're going to say is that people want to be, they want to be mobile. They, you know, mobility is destiny and they want to right. be mobile. So quantum people is a way of describing the tools that can make you mobile and portable right. skills. Absolutely. Well, there's sort of three categories of people that I describe as quantum people, and they 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 vaguely or they they some of them somewhat overlap. One of them is just youth, and this is very important in understanding the future of our human demographics because today's young generations, uh, millennials, Generation Z, and Generation Alpha, who are today's babies, are the three largest generations in the history of the human species, roughly 1.8, 1.9 billion people each. So the world is still more young than it is old, despite aging. But young people are not having children, right? There's been a global fertility crash dating to before the financial crisis, but accelerated by the financial crisis and further accelerated by COVID. So we're experiencing, we will soon experience a demographic freefall. And today's young who have no children and don't own homes are also the largest generation in the world. And they want to, and they're again, as we discussed at the very beginning, living in the wrong places. You know, I want to characterize the, the median human being in the world. I mean, Hugo, you and I both grew up in a world probably where you said, what's a normal person? You might say, well, it's a husband and a wife. It's a two income household living in a suburban uh, geography with two children. Right. That would be like what our conception of the median person in the world today. The median human being is young, has no children, does not own a home, lives in a city and is economically struggling. These are the characteristics to me of the median human being on the earth today. And that is going to continue actually all the way like long into the future because young people aren't having children. They can't afford homes. They do live in cities. They live in the wrong places, in climate stress places, and they want to be mobile. They want to move. So you're a quantum person if you are a Filipino nurse or an Indian construction worker, and you spend your life moving around from construction site to construction site or elderly home to elderly home in different countries, collecting your, your paycheck and sending it via remittances around the world. That's a quantum person. But then, of course, at the top of the pyramid, you have the quantum people who have five passports or ultra high net worth individuals who have many different residencies and, and so forth. And that's also a demographic that I talk about in the book. And of course, that demographic is super interesting because you can see how, again, in a world of not in a world of uh, you know a set number, though not a finite number, still a growing number of high net worth individuals, economies you know can be can are catering in a way to uh, to these individuals by again selling passports, selling citizenship, engaging in what's called sovereign equity instead of raising more sovereign debt. 
and effect that, that could obviously negatively affect their credit rating. They're trying to attract sovereign equity and selling bits of themselves, you know, real estate and so forth in exchange for citizenship and nationality. And then there's the digital workers and, and you know, digital nomads, the number of countries that have these digital nomad schemes for the millennials who are talented and who are services economy and tech workers. That has grown from one or two countries like Estonia to 75 countries today. There's 75 or more countries, pretty much half the world is now competing for young people to come and live there, to spend money, to drink at their in their, you know, drink coffee in their in their coffee shops and stay in their Airbnbs and live, use their co-working spaces because fundamentally consumption and the services economy is such a huge driver of uh, of our economies today. So there are, again, many different categories of quantum people, but more and more people are certainly becoming quantum people, even in a world where I think we have to acknowledge most people, most of the human species may still not leave the country or the continent in which they were born, but those are not the populations. And this is not to be dismissive of them, of course. Uh, ethically, you know, I focus on all 8 billion people of the world and I try to come up with solutions for all 8 billion people of the world. But when it comes to what is moving the needle economically in the next 10, 20, 30 years, it is the quantum people. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, that's, let's, let's, let's round it out with thinking about investment implications and you have thought a lot about this i know and you have created some proprietary data sets blended some data sets i think really and correct me if i'm wrong to really think about ways of investing in these likely changes because in a sense we're talking about fragility and maybe anti-fragility regions that will benefit from get stronger with volatility climate volatility and regions that will get weaker with climate volatility is that is that a good way of thinking about maybe the first order investment implications of climate change it, it's it's likely where people will move to and therefore probably it's kind of real estate that feels it most obviously but of secondary you get big shifts in innovation clusters and innovation clusters lead to lots of second third order effects is, is that how you think about it overall and maybe you could talk a little bit about the sort of the data sets you've pulled together to really i think in in, in a you know in an area that is so important on any given day it probably isn't but as a sort of huge trend it's super important and i and maybe there is an absence of an intelligent blend of data sets around it that's exactly right. And, you know, it isn't politically correct to say so, but there are places that have the capacity to be winners from climate change and therefore um, uh, relative to other geographies exhibit that anti-fragility. And that's where Canada comes in, you know, northern Ontario or central Ontario and areas like Waterloo, you know, which now is a very thriving academic and vocational and technical ecosystem where Silicon Valley tech companies are relocating, um, you know, large clusters for, for R&D activity. The same thing is happening in Switzerland. Um, you can see this in Sweden, uh, you know, in Baltic, the Baltic countries and so forth. So there is a you know new distribution that was happening in any case, just given rising wealth and education and connectivity and, you know, entrepreneurship in these societies. It's not all climate related. But yes, indeed, when it comes to um, the impact of climate and fundamentally on our, our real estate, land and property assets, um, you know, we mostly focus on the downside, right? We have a lot of companies out there that tell you that Miami is going to sink, um, you know, and that you don't want to be exposed to these coastal areas and various parts of the world. But it actually is still a very big, vast world. And what I set out to do after in the course of writing this book was to say, you know, if I can qualitatively answer these questions as to what are the prime geographies that are going to be the winners from climate change and what should they do to adapt um, and gain in population and gain, you know, and become the new core, if you will, instead of the periphery of the world economy, what are they? And then I said, you know, I realized that there, there, there should be an algorithmic approach to this. So we started pulling together data sets and that's become Climate Alpha. And it's a mix of climatological data, socioeconomic data, fiscal and, uh, and other kinds of indicators. We've back-tested with 20 years time series data, and now we're projecting forward through what's called scenario-based forecasting to look at what would happen to asset prices um, across the various uh, asset classes of real estate under different climate scenarios or other governance scenarios as well and demographic scenarios and even energy scenarios in terms of the composition. Because of course, if a country moves more rapidly towards renewable power, 
then it's going to be you know decrease its um, its current account deficits as an energy importer, for example, and all of these other effects. So we're trying to code and model all of these possible scenarios for different geographies, and then to price out to the year 2040, but choosing any year increment between now and 2040, what will happen to asset values in those places. So that, that's what Climate Alpha, our, our product does. And um, it isn't really, it's, it's yes, the price of real estate assets is a dependent variable, but you want to know this whole story along the way in order to understand what other industries are going to benefit. Because as you rightly say, it isn't even so much a neat first, second, third order effect. It's all of these changes happening in economies simultaneously. And real estate is simply one barometer of the health or vitality of, of a society. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's 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 round let's round off. Let's fin finish off with some fun stuff. So you've <laughs> been to loads of countries. You've been to loads more countries than I have, by quite a large number. And a lot of the ones you've been to, I really want to go to. So let's do quick fire. Of all the countries you've been to, what were the most scary? Scariest place for me would be a tie between Venezuela and Nigeria. And that is despite having served in U.S. Special Operations Forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, I was never more afraid uh, than I was in parts of Lagos and parts of Caracas, uh, you know, and uh, so that that's really telling about those places. It's really the degree and the potential for arbitrary violence. Uh, in those countries and in those those uh, capitals, which of course is on full display if you look at Venezuela right now, and uh, you know it, it had a different kind of chaos to it under Chavez when I had first gone and visited. In Nigeria, you just feel at any given time someone could just put a gun to your head and pull the trigger and just take the wad of cash out of your pocket for no reason, you know. And so I constantly find find myself, you know, paying bribes to be able to cross the street in a place like you know in parts of Nigeria. So much, you know, orders of magnitude to me scarier. Of course, when you're in the military, you're you're protected in, in many different physical, you know, sort of ways. Um, but even walking around Kabul, Baghdad, obviously I'm I'm of a certain complexion, uh, so that also has something to do with it. But I never really felt as as afraid in those places. Even at the height of the surge, I didn't feel as afraid in Iraq and Afghanistan as I did when I was traveling through uh, Nigeria and Venezuela. Biggest positive surprises. Uh, geographically, um, yeah. you know, I, uh, oh, okay. This is an easy one, actually. It's the Caucasus. Um, and I, I spend a, I've spent a lot of time in the Caucasus, particularly in Georgia and Azerbaijan. I spotlight them again in, in this book because of their, again, their, their sort of geographic location and sort of their climate related future is fairly positive. They're small countries. They're getting wealthier. They have energy and, you know, other, other assets. They're somewhat elevated. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the governance is improving. I mean, of course, not a week goes by where there's in some minor political crisis in Georgia. Uh, but generally speaking, they're connecting themselves to each other through the Anatolian corridor, you know, to the Caspian Sea. So I'm quite bullish on the Caucasus. And I, I bring this up because these may seem like geographically remote and insignificant places, and they, they may always be. But you have to compare with what Georgia was like in the 90s and early 2000s when I first went there. And I wrote a chapter of my very first book about Georgia, and it was the most heinously corrupt country I had ever yet I had been to up to that point in my life. Um, and I was literally handing out $5 bills, $10 bills everywhere. You know, the, the cops would stop you just for existing. And, um, you know, I compared it in my first book to basically a tin pot West African dictatorship. Now, if you go to Tbilisi, Georgia today, or just the country, you know, as a small country that it is, you'll be mesmerized by the oozing charm of that country and the turnaround in, and the World Bank rankings, you know, underscore this ease of doing business and other sorts of things. You'll see that it was, you know, European cultural capital of 2018 or 2019, something like that. There's just festivals going on. The, the lingua franca on the streets of Tbilisi is now American English. Um, you know, so it's become a mountainous, windy East Berlin, as I describe it in this book. So there's there's very little not to love about, you know, a kind of cost effective lifestyle, you know, in a place like that. So biggest surprise in terms of a turnaround country for me has to be Georgia and, and in particular in the Caucasus in general. Biggest surprise on food. food. Food was much better than expected. Was that just too difficult to answer? 
Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm, I'm a foodie. Um, well, I'll tell you, it's so funny. People think that Georgian food is really good, and I actually don't like it. <laughs> so food, food, food. I, oh, my goodness, you, you've stumped me. I mean, Vietnamese food is amazing in Vietnam and very bland elsewhere, right? So in terms of the contrast between the home market versus abroad, you want to be eating Vietnamese food in Vietnam. It is yeah. a total shock to the senses in the best possible way. Yeah. Uh, what's left on your bucket list? Where do you really want to go that you haven't been? Uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, I want to hike the Kokoda Trail, a uh, very famous, uh, you know, sort of route where you hopefully don't get lost and, you know, kidnapped by some, you know, heretofore undiscovered indigenous tribe. Uh, but it's certainly on my, my bucket list. And of course, it is one of the societies that's most been studied by anthropologists for its linguistic diversity and other cultural attributes. So that would be a lot of fun. Um, I want to go scuba diving in Raja Ampat, which technically belongs to, to Malaysia. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of this Southeast Asian region where I now live is a cornucopia, you know, of cultures. It is perhaps the most densely diverse, uh, you know, sort of corner of the planet. And I've lived here now for almost 10 years. And despite traveling to a different ASEAN country every week, you really feel like you could spend your whole life uh, literally visiting different nodes and hubs and corners, uh, rural and urban of this region and never get bored of it. And that's quite a contrast for those of us who you know, grew up in, um, even in New York. I mean, when, when I got married, uh, my wife and I were sort of, you know, just had a long weekend to spare for a quick honeymoon. And we're, we're New Yorkers, you know, Manhattanites. We said, where can we go for Labor Day weekend just quickly in a short radius that we haven't been to before? And we settled on Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. Now, Charleston is a lovely town, but now we live in Singapore. And if you can imagine, I mean, we can fly to Hong Kong for lunch. I can be, go to Manila for lunch, Kuala Lumpur for lunch, Jakarta for lunch, or have weekends, you know, in, uh, in the, the most um, exotic, uh, you know, treehouse resorts in Cambodia um, or be in Borobudur in Indonesia and just countless other gems. Uh, that are in the immediate radius of of Singapore. So I'm 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 so delighted to have wound up living here, and I and and, and you know I hope that uh, if cli climate permitting, uh, I'll probably stay here for a long time. Well, I'm absolutely green with envy. Um, <laughs> COVID uh, COVID has meant not much travel, and certainly not much travel to Asia. And I miss Southeast Asia desperately, and now I want to hit you up for all the places you just <laughs> mentioned uh, so i'm agreeing with emmy but i'm also extremely grateful for you agreeing to come on the podcast it was great meeting you when we when we spoke before we have a mutual friend who i'm very grateful to for introducing us i really like. enjoyed this and i want to thank you for taking more time than i said it would be uh, but i hope you think it was worth it and i really appreciate it oh a great pleasure hugo we could have gone on for hours yes well yes we could and we will <laughs> no doubt in the future absolutely thank you Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. 
William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.